Good morning again. As we continue through our overview of the Old Testament, it's all about to speed up, as it were, as we come to the close of the book of Exodus. And I promise you that we're not going to get bogged down in the book of Leviticus. But I want to introduce you this morning to fictitious Benaniah. Now there's a name I just conjured up, but sounds like a Hebrew bricklayer, doesn't it? Benaniah. So much has happened in such a, a short period of time for the average Hebrew brick maker, for the average Hebrew person. The plagues had come and gone. The people had been ejected from Egypt. Then Pharaoh's army came after them and the, uh, the Red Sea opened up before them as they crossed over to the other side. They then found themselves in the desert without much water or food. And somehow these were both supplied. These were both provided. Remember, Ben and I is one of some two million Hebrew people, is the projected figure. They then were drawn to the foot of the Mount, uh, Mount Sinai. And what was going on there? Ben and I may well have said there was thunder, there was lightning, there was a thick cloud over the mountain, there was a very loud trumpet blast that at one point just seemed to get louder and louder and louder. He, he may well have said there was smoke that was billowing up from like a furnace. They were all trembling just as the mountain was trembling. And then God spoke and they trembled all the more. So much had happened so quickly over a period of three months, so much that was out of the ordinary, so much that just couldn't be explained. And now Moses had been gone for some weeks. He disappeared up that mountain where God was. He may well be dead. And I wonder whether Ben and I may well have also said, I don't remember much of the specifics of what God said to us. And so a delegation come to Aaron, Moses' brother, and now that there's been weeks of silence, weeks of inactivity, weeks without Moses, following such dramatic events that had happened over just such a short period of time, and there they were at the foot of the mountain, the people request that they have something to represent God to them. And as Aaron had grown up in Egypt under a multitude of false gods, he thought it best to give the people something that may, in fact, represent God to them, perhaps under pressure, perhaps also fearing that Moses may well have perished. And knowing too that Moses, God always spoke to Moses first and then Moses would speak to Aaron and Aaron was then the mouthpiece. He then tries to appease the people. He tries to keep the peace. Those who are young in their faith, 
when the pressure comes on and they're lacking wisdom, they may make some questionable decisions. Aaron didn't yet know God personally. Neither did Benaniah. And I think we're reminded here that we need to be prayerful for those who are young in their faith. We need to be supporting them and encouraging them and not being judgmental so much about questionable decisions. But as their pseudo-leader, Aaron now takes things further. He arranges a festival because the calf was actually a young bull or represented a young bull, and in its day was a symbol of fertility and sexual strength. And so we come to verse 5. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. L-O-R-D, capital L-O-R-D. That is Yahweh. Aaron has the audacity to call this bull by God's personal name, Yahweh. We're going to have a feast to this bull tomorrow, to Yahweh. Little wonder the very first of the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words or the first directives from the Lord would have been and were, you shall have no other gods before me. Verse 6, and they rose up early the next day and they offered burnt offerings and brought their peace offerings and the people sat down to eat and drink and then they got up to indulge in revelry. The ESV puts it, they rose up to play. That is, to engage in sex games. This was a drunken orgy in the name of worship. God's chosen people are involved in gross immorality. As a result, they have invited the wrath of God and God's anger is burning against them. Gross immorality and idolatry. They're worshipping an idol. Verse 7. And God said, the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Go down. Go down, Moses. Moses has just been enjoying a splendid time in the presence of God and would have naturally just wanted to stay there in God's presence. But God says, Go down. Go and see just how far the people have so quickly fallen. Go down, Moses. So often we want to stay in the glorious presence of our God, enjoying the mountaintop experience when there is a world of people around us heading toward destruction. Go down, people. Go down, church. 
You are in the world but not of the world. Point people back to God. Verses 8 to 10. And this is God still speaking to Moses. Moses doesn't know exactly what the people have done yet, but God is about to tell him. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I directed them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that in my wrath I may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. God is angry. God has just threatened to disown his own people, to wipe them from the face of the earth, to wipe them out. Notice he says to Moses, they're your people. It sounds like God doesn't want them anymore. God threatens to do as he did with Noah, to start all over again, and this time with Moses. And I wonder whether the evil one was whispering into Moses' ear at that time. What a temptation for Moses. I wonder, did Moses briefly think, oh, wow, I could be the father of God's own people. I could be somebody. We're often drawn to something because we want to be somebody. Pride drives us. But as we'll see, Moses' heart is for his people and we'll notice that Moses doesn't pray for himself but he prays for his people. He, he prays for the salvation of his people. So be very careful the motivation that drives you. What is it that motivates you? At this point, however, all looks grim for the multitude of people God wants to destroy them, to start all over again with Moses. Frankly, these people don't have a leg to stand on. These people don't have a prayer. And perhaps some of you are finding yourselves in a similar situation at the moment. Either because of your own doing or somebody else, you find yourself in dire straits. Your situation is desperate. You can't see any way out. Somebody once said, you know it's going to be a bad day when you arrive at work and a current affair news team is there in your office. Well, you know it's going to be a bad day when your twin sister forgets your birthday. Maybe you've had some bad days recently. You're desperate, you can't see your way out, you're at the end of your rope, you don't know what to do. Maybe you see how tough it is for somebody else whom you love and you just really want their situation to change, to be better for them. 
The only hope that you do have is that God might intervene, that God might step in, that God will get involved. So how do you pray when you're desperate? How do you pray when the situation seems hopeless? How do you pray when you're concerned for someone who's lost, concerned about their salvation? May I suggest that you pray like Moses, for the only hope for the Hebrew people was the prayer of Moses. Moses implored the Lord, this is verse 11, implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? In one sense, I think the audacity of Moses. God has said, go down, Moses. Moses is not going down just yet. Moses implores the Lord, his God. And Moses begins by reminding God that these are his people. And to remember his purpose. Often we take too much of the blame if our kids are going off the rails. We are responsible to some degree. However, our kids belong to God. God had told Moses in verse 7, they're your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt. And Moses says, oh, no, 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 they're not. They're not my people. They're your people, God. And you brought them up out of the land of Egypt. Moses is not avoiding responsibility and he's not trying to shift the blame onto God, but rather he's appealing to God on the basis of God's own heart toward his people and he he asks God to remember that these are his people, his children. We too must ask God to remember his people for everyone, everyone who is walking this planet Earth, has been made by the hand of God and made in the image of God. The Apostle Peter wrote, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He doesn't want anyone to perish. God's heart is for all people. That's why he made us. That's why he made you. That's why he sent Jesus. He gave his only son that none may perish. God's heart is for people. And Moses says, these are your people, Lord. May your your wrath not burn against those who don't follow you, but remember your great love for all people. We need to be reminding God or appealing to God on the basis of his love for all people that he might get involved with those who are lost. But secondly, Moses appeals to God to remember his reputation. You see, God's glory is at stake here. Verse 12, 
Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. In other words, Moses is saying, Lord, if you destroy your people, the Egyptians will think that you are an evil God. You'll be discredited among them. Your glory is at stake here, Lord. Moses asked God to remember his reputation. And we too must do that if our prayers are to be heard by God. In many of the Psalms, we read time and time again, the psalmist appeals to God to remember his reputation. And so as we pray, are we praying first and foremost that God will be glorified? No matter how that might be brought about, that God will be glorified. And sometimes how that is brought about is not what we would think is ideal. God was glorified through Jesus' suffering and death. God was glorified through Paul's enduring a a thorn in the flesh. God was glorified through the, the grief and the loss that Job had to suffer and endure. If you're going through a time of loss and grief at the moment, are you praying that God will be glorified through that? Are we praying that even though we can't see how that God will be glorified, let us pray that God be glorified. And so if we follow Moses' example, then we pray, as we pray, then we ask God to remember his people and remember his reputation, but also to remember his promises. Verses 13 to 14. Remember Abraham, this is Moses again, appealing to God, remember Abraham, Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they will inherit it forever. Verse 14, the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing upon his people. Moses asked God to remember his promises made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, or Israel. That he would take their offspring into the promised land. Now I'm sure that God could have started all over again with Moses and technically The family group that would have come from Moses would have been descendants from Abraham. But Moses sought to remind God of his promises before. And Moses here demonstrates a faith in God to take these stiff-necked people and make them into a faithful God-honouring people and demonstrates too that he's not keen to promote himself, but he's keen to promote the glory of God. 
Thus Moses prays for the salvation of, of his people. He prays for the salvation of his people. And verse 14 says that the Lord relented and did not bring disaster upon his people. God is faithful and true to his word. He can indeed be trusted. When King Solomon was dedicating the temple and the Ark of the Covenant had been brought in, included in King Solomon's prayer are these words. He says, Praise be to the Lord who has given rest to his people. He's brought them into the promised land. He's given them rest just as he promised. King Solomon then says this, Not one word has failed of all the good promises he gave through his servant Moses. Not one word of his promises have failed that he gave to his servant Moses. Not one word has failed. You and I can trust the promises of God. So as we consider this story this morning, on the surface of it, we might think that we can change the mind of God. But I wonder, did God want Moses to intervene on behalf of his people? He asked Moses to go down, to leave his glorious presence, to see how far the people have deteriorated, how far they have fallen. But was he planting that seed within the the heart of Moses, which was already flourishing? Did God want Moses to stand in the gap and plead on their behalf and thereby give us an example to follow that gives us confidence in the heart of our gracious God? That he too, he wants his people to be saved. Was Moses changing God's mind? Or was he agreeing with God? Go down, Moses, and do something for the people who have corrupted themselves. Point them back to me. Bring them back to me. Pray for them. You see, we need to balance the sovereignty of God that that he is in control of all things and he can do all things with the free will of humanity. So there's the sovereignty of God and the free will of humanity and we also need to balance that with the third notion that, that God also goes about achieving his purposes through human intervention, through human prayer. There's the sovereignty of God, there's, there's hum, human free will, and God works within or has an intervening nature in what's going on in the world through prayer. For whatever reason, he has chosen to function that way. He uses us as his agents. 
And we are told to pray. And we are told to pray continuously, without ceasing. Time and time again, we see God answering prayer as we read in Scripture. And so the question for us then is, how faithful are we in our prayer lives? How concerned are we about those who are going to hell? Do we pray for them? Do we remind God that they are his people? Do we appeal to him on the basis of his reputation and remind him of his heart that none may perish? How active are we in prayer? How faithful are we in our prayer lives? Just want to encourage you to take a moment to reflect. You might close your eyes. Take a moment to reflect before we close in song.